Welcome to SJMS Talks. This podcast is published by the academic journal Scandinavian Journal of Military Studies. In this episode, we continue our discussion on Arctic security politics. Today, we focus on China and their interest in the Arctic Council. China considers itself a near-Arctic state and currently holds observer status in the Council. Since the invasion of Ukraine, meetings in the Council have been suspended, creating global concerns about the implications for Arctic governance and stability. On May 11, Norway took over the chairmanship from Russia, sparking questions about a possible serious restart in meetings. If we want to understand the future of the Council, we need to take China serious as a player in the Arctic. To talk about China's role in the region, we have invited Camilla Sørensen, the foremost expert of China's role in global politics at the Royal Danish Defense College. Camilla has recently published an article with her colleague Jan Stown. Together, they explore the Russian-Chinese strategic cooperation in the Arctic. Camilla and Jan argue that China's strategic ends tie to their strong need to be respected as a great power. To pursue this, China uses its strong economy to invest and attract trade deals. They use their strong military to project themselves as a responsible global power. And they focus on becoming international lawmakers, challenging existing legal frameworks. Camilla and Jan further argues that these Chinese ends, ways and means increasingly collide with those of Russia. With a stalling Russian economy and overall declining position, China is likely to enhance its economic, military and political power. This will further encourage China's confidence and sense of entitlement and ultimately decreasing its interest in reassuring Russia. The other Arctic state, Camilla Yang concludes, should seek to exploit these points of frictions. To do so, however, we need to understand what cards President Xi Jinping are going to play now the council is set to restart. I'm sure Camilla can help us understand that. Camilla does not represent the Danish defense, but speaks on her own behalf as an expert on Chinese politics. Camilla, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. You worked extensively on on China and recently also in the context of Greenland and the Arctic. What is interesting about China's role in the Arctic? Well, there's quite a, a lot that's interesting about China's role in the Arctic today, uh, especially for us, uh, the other Arctic, uh, the Arctic states. It is in the Arctic that we most directly confront uh, China, a China that is now seriously st- stepping into its great power role. And and we also most directly confront the, the result, which is these, this intensifying uh, competition or rivalry between the, the US and China. So there's a lot of interesting uh, things there. But that being said, I think the most significant question that that stands today is what are the implications of uh, the war in Ukraine, uh, the the way uh, the we- a weakened Russia in relation to China? What will the implications of that be for the Chinese room of maneuver uh, in the Arctic? Because we already saw or we've seen before uh, in recent years that China's room of maneuver in the Arctic has been decreasing due to the way that intensifying U.S.-China rivalry has come into the Arctic and has made it really has made the other Arctic states or the Western Arctic states more skeptical about cooperating with, with China in the Arctic. So they've been less of 
opportunities for China in the Arctic to to increase its activities, increase its cooperations. But now with a weakened Russia uh, and a Russia that will become more dependent on China, uh, how will that play into the Arctic? I think is a really interesting question, and also what we try to, yeah, start some uh, um, research on in in the article just published. And and I'm and I'm fascinated by the the idea of this this near. Arctic state concept, and also now you're saying, okay, with the decreasing power of of Russia, then there's a there's a, a kind of renewed role, and within that, you have the Arctic Council, mm-hmm. right? And that's that's the the main topic for for mm-hmm. today. We have the Arctic Council that's mm-hmm. reconvening in in a sense. Has 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 China always been interested in the Arctic Council? The Arctic Council is a relatively new institution, you could say. It was set up in, in 1996. And China has f- since or was already then interested in the Arctic, uh, mostly driven by uh, uh, an ambition about building up an Arctic or broader polar research uh, capacity. So China's early, you could say, engagement in the Arctic has been very much driven by an urge to understand the climate in the Arctic, the climate changes in the Arctic and how that would influence uh, outside the Arctic, also influence uh, uh, China. China is very much infect, uh, influenced by uh, climate change and gives them a huge uh, challenges in relation to, to their economy or has huge economic uh, costs. So that was very much what was driving it. And they uh, became observers in the Arctic Council in 2013, together with several other East East Asian states, Japan, South Korea, Singapore. And I think uh, at that time, of course, they had to acknowledge, they had to respect that the Arctic Council was the primary governance institution in the Arctic. And they accepted that and they signed uh, uh, that. Um, but already then in debates uh, among Chinese Arctic scholars, experts, you already saw this debate about Arctic governance. Uh, uh, is it, is it, uh, shouldn't it be more open, an open uh, governance structure? Uh, also non-Arctic states, you have more of a role to say what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. So, so it will also influence uh, non-Arctic states. So they should also have a role in regulating uh, Uh, the access to and the activities uh, in the Arctic. But only in 2018, when China came with the first and and until now only kind of official strategy paper on the Arctic and their position in the Arctic, and also with that, their position on Arctic governance, only that we saw kind of a more direct, uh, I wouldn't say challenge, but at least this indicating that China would also you know, like to see that there were other more international institutions or non-Arctic specific institutions that had more of a role to play in in the Arctic, you could say. So But how do they how do we do they go about that? So now we have a change of guards, mm-hmm. you have Norway taking over the chairmanship. What kind of tools and how, how do they if they want to change the governance structure of the Arctic or like through the council or through something 
other than the council? How how do they go about doing it? To be honest, we haven't seen much of that. At least is my argument. There's a lot of debate uh, in in the in the literature on this, uh, and in more policy oriented debates uh, on this. Especially, uh, you can find a lot of uh, U.S. scholars that are really concerned that China will now conduct what they call this lawfare uh, approach, also in the Arctic. Uh, so there's a lot of of concern there. We haven't seen much, but of course we should be really uh, uh, paying a lot of attention to it because what you would expect was that they would seek to mobilize like-minded states uh, that could be the other east asian state but also some european states that are non-arctic states but would like to play more of a role in the arctic we've seen the uk uh, france uh, others also try to increase their their presence and also their influence on the arctic china is not the only state who uses this concept of a near arctic state or a near arctic stakeholder and things like that there's a, really a lot of states that are trying to to beef up um, their legitimate stakes and position in the Arctic and also in relation to Arctic governance. So they could try to mobilize uh, uh, like-minded stake, but also other stakeholders, you could say, uh, indigenous groups that feel that they are not uh, being heard in the current setup with the Arctic Council being led by Arctic states. There are a lot of communities in the Arctic that feels that they are not really getting their voice heard. Uh, so they could try to, to mobilize more of that uh, and generally point to the weaknesses in the existing system. And this is exactly where the current pause of the Arctic Council opens more of room for them to point to. You can see the main governance institution in the Arctic, the Arctic Council, it doesn't work. You put it on pause. We need something else. We need something that can come in and take over. And that could then be promoted as something that is not so Arctic specific and something where non-Arctic states such as China has a bigger say, a role at the table. And what could that be? Like because and 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 the follow-up question is what's what's the future of the Arctic Arctic Council? Is 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 that in in your mind is is that a bright future or and what is the alternative? What kind of specific institution or governance structure mm. could these near near Arctic state well, groups push? I think we don't need to invent something new. It will be that the Arctic uh, or the uh, the Arctic uh, institutions gradually or the Arctic governance will gradually need to take up more of what we could call international rules or international. And, and they've already done, you know, the the UN law of the sea is what is the basis for a lot of for the Arctic Council, a lot of the, the working groups in the Arctic Council, etc. So the law of the sea is what kind of what the Arctic states from the beginning agreed on should be what are kind of the, the basis for. So so it's not a new thing but you could have it on more uh, on more areas that you would have these uh, UN regulations um, uh, regulations uh, international regulations for how uh, ships should sail the requirements for activities like more generally well that also should also go for the Arctic the point is that you will have something that is non-arctic specific it, that we, again it doesn't have to be something new but but non-arctic states such as China could push for these non-arctic specific Uh, regulations, uh, rules, governance, uh, institutions to come into the Arctic and actually take over or not being translated to something as the Arctic Council because it's you could say that they have so far been translated through the Arctic Council, been fitted into being something specific for the Arctic and that translating belt mm -hmm could uh, yeah. be weakened because the, the problem, or not the problem, but what China sees and also other non-Arctic states is that they don't really have a seat at the table where these things are translated into what, what then goes in the Arctic. 
I, I imagine that, that the, the Nordic or the, the Arctic state, Denmark, Norway, they want to push against that. They want to keep the, the council alive. So how do they do that with the, with the change of guards? How do they do that? Well, that's the uh, really, uh, <laughs> really important question. Um, and we'll see. Norway just took over the chairmanship of the Arctic Council. Russia had, has had the chairmanship of the Arctic Council. Of course, that made it even more difficult to continue uh, the Arctic Council after the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February last year. So, so it's been on pause since the, the Russian uh, invasion of, of Ukraine. Now, Norway took over the chairmanship. They indicated that they want to again call for meetings, uh, so on pause, uh, the Arctic Council, but without Russian participation. But can you <laughs> really have an Arctic Council without having the biggest state in the Arctic participating? It will, under any circumstances, be a different Arctic Council. And and go, coming back to the Chinese position, the Chinese, the Chinese Arctic representative, uh, Feng Gao, uh, he said at the uh, Arctic Circle meeting, a big uh, uh, conference on the Arctic in Iceland uh, in, in the fall last year, he said, an Arctic Council without Russia is not legitimate. So the Chinese position, I think you'll find that position among also other non-Arctic states will be that an Arctic Council without Russia is not really representing. So so the argument for having the Arctic Council should be that the Arctic states are represented and they are they have these certain privileges. This is actually what the non-Arctic states that are observers in the Arctic Council have, have signed is that the Arctic state, because they have territory in the Arctic, has certain privileges. But so, if you don't uh, have the biggest Arctic states there, how, how can you really so, keep so that? So your, your recommendation would be to have Russia in like need to be there Given, like, even you know, despite these uh, geopolitical circumstances that we see in Europe, that's also very difficult under the under the current circumstances, right? To to imagine that we could sit down with Russia and kind of try to isolate it to only discussing Arctic issues. Also, because you could say a lot of the the growing general growing uh, security tension between uh, the West, NATO, and Russia is also increasingly spilling into to the Arctic. So that's also very difficult to imagine. But I will just really be encouraged you to encourage the ones that take the decision to really think about the implications for the further uh, development of Arctic governance of again op- or, or reopening the Arctic Council now without Russia, because that, as I see it, opens up for a lot of the or gives more ground to a lot of the arguments that the non-Arctic states, uh, very much led by China, has been trying to promote for for a few years now. We are thinking a lot about China's rise, rising China, and what goes on in the internal, also the internal dynamics in China. What goes on in President Xi Jinping's head at the moment, also specifically when it comes to to the Arctic Council or, or, or Arctic in general? Is, is is that all the stuff that you've said about the Chinese position, or is there something else going on in the leadership? Uh, in China, or is, is, is that simply synonymous? On the top of the Chinese foreign and security policy agenda, there is the Taiwan issue, the South uh, South China Sea. So what is uh, the changes uh, and what the Chinese see as the more uh, threatening uh, development that they have in their near neighborhood with the U.S. Uh, increasing its military presence, uh, strengthening its alliances, Japan, South Korea, Australia. So there's a lot there. And that's the main focus for China. 
So I don't, I'm not sure that Xi Jinping has done, done much of thinking on, on the Arctic Council. Uh, but the way the Arctic comes in to key priorities, key strategic priorities in China is through this, the main frame, the main lens that they see a lot of things, uh, a lot of development, or if not all developments in the international system and, and, and in China's foreign and security policy through now. Uh, uh, and that is the, the relationship between the US and China. And of course, here the Arctic is important because it's, it's uh, again, the geostrategic or military strategic importance of the Arctic. Uh, it's it's where, where you have the shortest distance between the great powers, right? So that was also why the Arctic was so important important during the Cold War. If you had, the, if the Cold War turned into a hot war, that would be where the missiles or, or bomb fires would be. Uh, so, 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 so this is, of course, also that the Chinese are also looking at that, uh, specifically the Chinese military is also looking at that, that is the more military strategic importance of, of, of the Arctic. But then it's also China-Russia relations and, and, and you could say broader questions about world order. So really these big questions, right? How can they because what the Chinese are, uh, their ambition is that they want to be respected as an equal great power to the U.S. They want to have influence, um, status, respect as a, power e a great power equal to the U.S. They see a U.S. that's not willing to give them that. So as, as, as Xi Jinping recently says, there are dangerous storms ahead. It will become more difficult. And, and, and in a Chinese analysis, you need to keep a somewhat pragmatic, good relationship with Russia in order to to um yes to order to really uh, conduct this uh, rivalry or, or confrontation with the US China and Russia share a long border over 3000 kilometers um there's a lot of reasons why China would not we shouldn't expect China to to distance itself from from Russia even though it 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 we have uh, a lot of pressure from European states, from US, trying to to get China to distance itself from Russia with the, with the ongoing uh, war in Ukraine. So, so also here the Arctic plays a role because again, Russia is the big Arctic state, um, and as we already talked about with this uh, decreased room of maneuver that China has experienced in in recent years, now with a Russia that's weaker, more dependent on China, there might be a bigger room for China in the Arctic, so it can conduct the activities um, that then links up to the Chinese domestic agenda, uh, because what they see when they look at the Arctic is also, on top of all the things we already discussed, is also simply the Arctic as a mean to the end of restructuring, upgrading the Chinese economy. And for that, they want to, they have uh, pointed to, to, they want to be a front runner in development of new technology, innovation and things like that. And here they see the Arctic in the same way as they see the deep sea and, and space as areas where you can really uh, try out uh, the technology you've developed, you can improve the technology, uh, you can try it out under these really hard conditions. Um, your, your, your engineers, your researchers are under constant pressure to improve uh, and you get a, no a lot of new knowledge in the process. So therefore they want to ensure that they have access and they have an opportunity to, to be there and try out their technologies like, like uh, you've seen the space program and the deep sea program developing. And that links directly up to what is key priority for Xi Jinping, going back to your question about what's, uh, what is he thinking, because key priority for Chinese leaders is always to keep the Communist Party in place, keep their grip on power in China. And for that, they need to keep um, a decent 
uh, growth rate. And for that, they need to restructure, upgrade the Chinese economy. And here, this about taking a leading role within new, new technologies is the key. We have arrived to the, la- the last question. What are you reading right now? Right now, I'm reading a bunch of, of articles on China and uh, Central Asia. Uh, I'm writing an article on uh, on China's, uh, you could call it new offensive uh, in Central Asia. We uh, just a few days ago saw the first ever in-person uh, China-Central uh, Asia t- uh, summit in Xi'an, uh, the old uh, emperor uh, capital. Uh, so, uh, so that uh, I'm I'm focusing a lot on. Uh, it relates a lot to geography, uh, geopolitics, to history, to culture. Uh, so, in many ways, it's it's a mix of. Uh, Uh, all the things that Xi Jinping is really out saying now, the Chinese recently launched uh, what we call already has called has named the three Gs, uh, the three initiatives, the global security initiative, the global development initiative, the global civilization initiative, indicating how China now really wants to take a lead, not take a lead, but present alternatives to the way that the West so far has been conducting uh, global development, global security, and this global coexistence that the Chinese... And all this comes together in the way that they are really now stepping into Central Asia, because they see Central Asia as an area where they can really promote this, promote this role of China. And again, with a weakened Russia, with a Russia that is maybe more compromising in relation to China, Russia has never been keen on letting China into the Arctic or Central Asia. This is kind of more the Russian backyard. Uh, there's been a kind of a, a division of labor. Uh, China could do a lot of economic things. Politics, security was more the Russian part of it. But now, of course, this division of labor is gradually uh, not disappearing, but it's changing. And 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 there are new opportunities for China. And I think what we're seeing now is they're really trying to grab these opportunities. We still haven't seen it in the Arctic, as I, as I tried out. We might see it, but we are already seeing it in Central Asia. So here I would recommend you ask for a yes. recommendation as well. I would recommend a book. It's still a few years. It, it, it was written a few years ago, but I still think it's it's a really excellent uh, read. It's uh, it's a book by Kenneth, Kent Kattler, uh, and it's called Supercontinent, The Logic of Euro-Asia Integration. And it really knits this about history, geography, geostrategy, and, uh, and economy. Uh, it's a great read. Thanks for that recommendation. There's a lot of stuff to for you to write up so you can come back here in the podcast and have a conversation again. Thank you so much, Camilla. You're welcome. And thanks to our listener. This podcast was brought to you by the Scandinavian Journal of Military Studies. It was produced by Jeppe Tejsker Jacobsen, Rauni Lohme and Sophie Baunheit. Music by Jens Bjerring. SGMS is an online open access journal publishing both high-quality research and valuable practice-oriented studies relevant to the military profession. This journal is produced and published by the Royal Danish Defence College, the Norwegian Defence University College, the Swedish Defence University, the Centre for Military Studies at the University of Copenhagen, and the Swedish Centre for Studies of Armed Forces and Society. Visit us at stms.nu. Thank you for listening.